I want to talk with you this morning about, as you see, this discipleship is not optional. One of these sermons, I cannot find a good title for it. Nothing snazzy, nothing that rhymes, just wasn't working. So this is the basic kind of topic that you get. And in reading a little bit of, you know, as I've told you before, when I read some of these different blogs and journals put out by various people, some Catholic, some evangelical, um, things strike me that, that don't strike them from the perspective I'm coming at. They, the problems that some of them have about things, I'm, I keep thinking they wouldn't have that problem if they would just, you know, follow the Bible more explicitly. But one of the problems that fellow was writing about the other day is this problem of what's called discipleship. I don't talk about that much in that framework or in those words here, and yet we talk about discipleship a lot in the way that I think is the right way to use it. And we could preach a long series of lessons on the idea of a disciple, what discipleship is. We're going to kind of skim across the top this morning. But the idea is put forward that somehow that being a Christian and then being a disciple are somehow different things. And the idea in some churches seems to be, and, and this, as its practice, is that when you, once you become a Christian, maybe you're baptized when you're a baby, you're a Christian, and, and then sometime later you might learn, if possible, to become a disciple. And those, some things are, those two things are separated out. In other churches that preach very much about salvation by faith alone or by grace alone, and that the Holy Spirit and God does everything for you in salvation, is that discipleship is kind of a tack-on to some people. Because once you believe that God's going to save you, and that nothing you can do can ever influence that in one way or the other, because you've been chosen before the foundation of the world, or at least now that you have faith, you've been saved forever, then, then discipleship, doing what the Bible says, is a, not, a good, it's not really uh, thought of as being very important. And especially when you do so much preaching that any kind of obedience is legalism, that when I try to obey God and do what he says in the Bible, keep his commandments if you love me, as Jesus says, they view that as a negative thing because keeping commandments is always in their mind equated with legalism. So discipleship can sometimes take a back seat. And then there's the other option that's out there for some people the idea is that the way that you know you're a Christian is if you do good deeds. And so people that really have no connection to the Lord's church or in any fashion whatsoever, as long as they go to the soup kitchen a couple times a month or donate something goodwill every once in a while, then they're a disciple of Christ because the, you know Christ did good works and so I do good works. So now I'm, I'm a disciple, I'm a Christian. And so all those ideas are off the track. They're wrong. They're not correct about how the Bible views. So like any other subject that we might look at, I'm going to always try, if possible, uh, whether I do a good job or not. Is But the point I want to point you back to thinking about it in terms of what's the Bible say about what it means to be a disciple and the relationship between being a disciple and being a Christian. And how does that work out in my life? So let's start here where, where Jesus really hones in on this subject of discipleship in a way he hadn't before this time. This is where Jesus is standing there ready to send back to heaven. He tells his apostles. Jesus came and spoke to them, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Teaching them 
to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says you make disciples of the nations first by baptizing them into him. That's, the, that's God's part of saving a person from their sins. And then when you do that, you teach them to observe all things that I've commanded. There's that legalism again, popping up its ugly head, of teaching people to observe what God said to do. But Jesus is the one who's teaching this, what they would call legalism, of observing commandments. Now, those two things are essential to be a disciple as Jesus defines it here. Number one, being baptized for the remission of your sins, to have your sins taken away, and then observing everything that Jesus commands as you live your life. Now, that's a lifetime process, as you see, but but this is what the Bible, how Jesus defines it here in this very well-known passage. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, and that's maybe perhaps what... um, I think that I have a big problem here. I think that I don't have the right slide. Sure. I th- let's just hope that I do. <laughs> because uh, I th- just to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, as I always say, when we're looking at doing it this way, but something all of a sudden... If I start telling you how I, uh, if I start telling you how I make the sausage, it's not very pretty. And, uh, huh? Yeah, it ain't ain't as pretty as it seems yet. Okay. I think I just need to delete a slide. There you go. All right. (laughs) Feel better. I thought what I had done is copied the one slideshow. I don't start over from scratch and delete everything I don't want and make make the best of them new. And I thought I had uh, lost all that and went back to my other slideshow from a few weeks ago. And uh, uh, anyway, oh, tr- I can still preach. Don't lose heart, but scare me for a minute. The word disciple or disciples is used 269 times. I have to tell you, I didn't count these. Somebody else wrote that. I think that's probably close. You can do different searches depending on how what you put in. You'll find similar numbers to this word disciple, and that's in English. So a disciple, basically, the mathetes in Greek, is simply a, a learner or one who is devoted to another and oftentimes defined as a follower, someone who is devoted to someone who would follow. And you find the most basic understanding of this Here is some disciples of John the Baptist. They were following John the Baptist, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And Jesus comes along the seashore there, and they hear him speak, and they see him. And he says, come follow me. And they left their nets, and they followed him. By definition, they became disciples of Jesus when they did that, when they followed him. Because that's what it meant. And by that, they didn't just go to walk around See what he said. They were going to learn from him. They were going to learn what he was, see what he was, with the idea of imitating what he was, what he thought, and what he did. That's what a disciple is. Now, there's all different variants as far as intensity of discipleship, but this is the basic meaning of it. And that's what's missing, really, in the lives of too many Christians, this this idea not just of being baptized at some point in time and every now and then you decide you might come to church if you feel like it, uh, but the rest of your life, you kind of live like you want to, and you, you do what other people around you do. Uh, that's what's missing. That's not a disciple. 
That's the one who's nominal a disciple, nominally a Christian, but that isn't at all how the Bible would define this word. And the problem is so many people are baptized to you know, bring about some immediate relief of fe- or feelings that they want at that time. So they're having a trouble in life, or they're confused, or, they're, or they feel bad about something, or they want, they're, they're depressed, and so they want to be baptized to get rid of those feelings or bring about some immediate relief, and they do not really become disciples after that. I don't know what percentage this is, but it's sometimes over time it can become rather significant the number of people that approach baptism and becoming a Christian that way. This will never suit the Lord. This is the kind of person he says you put your hand to the plow, we'll see in a moment, and turn back. But, but unfortunately, it's what a lot of people have of Christianity because Christianity has become a kind of a, a 12-step program for some people or it's a, psych, it's a psychological rearrangement and so they want to get some relief for a moment. So like they go to the doctor and they get a prescription for Valium, they feel better for a while, they come to a church, hear, hear something, or they want to become a Christian, reads a few things, and then they go on living their life and thinking the way they always thought. That's a symptom of our age. I'm not saying, and I don't believe that this church is particularly infected with that, but it's certainly possible that that can become the way of living. And I grew up, you know, I was a child in the 50s and 60s. That sounds ancient, doesn't it? To me, that sounds like, you know, normal life. You know, when I talk about the turn of the century, I'm talking about the 1900s, you know. And you people think about the turn of the century as 2001. Uh, we're just, I'm just out of touch on that deal. I'm thinking about the other century back there. People that I knew and grew up with were born in the 1800s. So, you know, it's, it's a big, big gap there, you know. But in any event, it was a problem back there in, in that church of people. Well, the term that often people would use back then was Sunday morning only Christians or Sunday morning Christians. They showed up at a custom or afraid of people's criticism on Sunday morning long enough to take the Lord's Supper, and then they disappeared. And when you had people, the people would, they would try to arrange this Lord's Supper in the service to keep them there for the sermon. Because you had people that would only show up for the 10 minutes to take the supper, and they would leave. So if you put it at the end of the service, it was thought, well, maybe they'll come early, and they'll stay to hear the sermon. With the beginning of the service, they would take the supper, and they would go. Anybody know? You know, this is way. Now, those people are no different than modern people who just don't have time for the Lord at all, and they live their life the way they want to, and they read a blog or two and consider themselves a Christian. It isn't any different. It's just the way society, you know, has allowed them to behave. And so people, you, you can't trick people like that. Moving the Lord's Supper in the service doesn't fool them. They know how much time they want to give, and they're going to give that much time. It's a pre-decision they've made. Most attendance, by the way, is just a pre-decision that you make that I'm going to be at this service or those services, or I'm not, and you pre-decide that. It isn't about the teaching. It isn't about the preaching oftentimes. It's just a, not even altogether how long it is sometimes. It's a pre-decision that most people make. And once I make a predecision, I'm going to be there at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and leave as soon as I possibly can. Then that's the way it's going to be. It's a shame. But that's unfortunately human nature. But this disconnect can happen in any generation where the ones who are teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you, whoever those people may be in a church, are not really doing a very good job of that. And we may fail at that at times here to teach people what their duty is. But then sometimes I can tell you that teaching the certain things and people actually doing it are two different stories. 
I had an uncle, my favorite uncle, Uncle Spike. Y'all, everybody should have an Uncle Spike, you know. But my Uncle Spike, he didn't have any children. He had my aunt Edna, his wife's name. Well, if your name is Spike, you've got to have a wife named Edna. This is kind of the way the world works. And so Aunt Edna, and then they didn't have any children. We're blessed by that. And so, uh, but he was pretty much an expert on child rearing, apparently. <laughs> I remember when my kids were teenagers, and they were doing this and that and the other, and not even any bad stuff. He'd say, don't you teach those children to do such and such? I, Uncle Spike, you know, it never occurred to me I should teach them, you know, to uh, come home when they're supposed to. I, I, never thir- I, just, I never thought of that at all. I never thought that I should teach them to pick up their stuff on the floor. I'm glad you pointed that out because it never would occur to me to tell them that. Of course, I told them a hundred times. Telling them to do something and actually them actually doing it, don't, doesn't every parent realize what a big disconnect that is a whole lot of the time? Of course it is. But on the other hand, there are parents who don't teach their children anything like that. And the children don't know. I meet people all the time. They simply don't know how to live their life in an orderly fashion or what's moral or immoral because their parents have never really talked to them about that or told them. No one's given them instructions. Or at least they haven't understood them at all. Now, the other thing that comes along about being a disciple, uh, by what authority or what basis do we have to baptize people who have not been brought to a clear decision to be a disciple of Christ. So if we're going to baptize someone, we at least ought to have a conversation, make sure that they have a clear decision in their mind, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to now be going to become a follower of Jesus Christ to learn how he lived, what he thought, what he taught his disciples, and I want to try to follow that. I want to do that as best I can for the rest of my life. I want to devote myself to him. That's what it means to become a Christian. Now, a part of that, of course, is understanding that you're lost without him and you need your sins forgiven. That's the big part of that. But understanding that you're lost and your sins need to be forgiven should lead you to accept him, as Peter said in Acts chapter 2, that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. He is both the Christ, the Son of God, the sacrifice of God, and he is Lord of heaven and earth, and you need to follow him. You need to do what he says and pay attention. That's kind of what it means to be Lord in Christ. And so we need to make sure that people have some kind of... Now, you're not going to have as clear an idea the day that you're baptized. You might 30 years later when you've been trying to live and study and grow and learn this. You're not going to have as clear an idea. And and I don't think people need to put off becoming a Christian until they know a whole bunch of stuff. But you can make the decision, I want to be a disciple of Christ without knowing all... Do you think the disciples knew that they were going to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane when they left their nets and followed Christ? Do you think they knew they were going to be there? fearing for their lives? No, they didn't know that. They followed Christ. So you can make a decision to follow the Lord without knowing where it's all going to end up. That's what following is. And dare dare we tell people as quote-unquote believers without discipleship that they are at peace with God and God with them. So here are people in churches and in society that we want to call them disciples of Christ or Christians who, who have not really followed Christ and imitated him in their life, in their morals, in their thoughts, and in their, in their actions and attitudes. They haven't decided to do that at all. Not because for a lack of time, but because they simply don't care to. They're more interested in following, making sure they know what Beyonce's latest song is. You know, whoever it may be. Or what the latest score from the football game is, more they are about making sure they know what Christ says for them to do. And so we can't give these people comfort 
whether they are me or you, whoever it may be, we can't give them any kind of comfort that just because you've been baptized or go to a church once in a while that, that you're okay with God. If you're not a disciple, discipleship is not optional. You need to fo- you need to begin to follow the Lord in doing what you do. And, and, and so discipleship on the other side, another error that's made today, discipleship is not about guessing what would Jesus do. Well, I'm going to get. I, I think Jesus would do this, or Jesus would do that. He he might. It's more like what did Je- what did Jesus do? As I mentioned last week, that's what you need to know. What did he do? And that that gets you more onto solid ground rather than just guessing. Well, I think Jesus would do this, and I think he would do that. Uh, find what the Bible says about it. What his apostles and he say about it. And then you have what discipleship is, is about, as we're going to see in a moment, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching in fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. So it's also about the rest of the New Testament. Because the apostles' teaching then comprises not just the words in red in your Bible, but it comprises the rest of the New Testament. A lot of people are good with what's in the red, they think. If they really read it and understood it, they'd be terrified by what's... I'm terrified by what's in red. Because it's so challenging to me as a human being and and as a person like I am to think about what Jesus is really saying that is required of me. As I begin to understand, I'm terrified of what it says. But people think, well, I'll just do the words in red. I'll leave all the other church stuff, the apostle stuff to somebody else. I don't need that. You know, I'm spiritual but not religious. By religion, they mean actually doing something tangible about their thoughts, actions, and morals. That's what they mean by, so I'm spiritual. I feel spiritual connected to God, but I'm going to do whatever I do what I want. I'm not going to bring my life into conformity to the gospel of Christ and my, down to my actions and thoughts and words. And so this is what is so often the mistake. Jesus said, he told the apostles he had more to say to them. I mean, this is a common mistake about following Jesus. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. But I don't want to be a disciple of the apostles or anything like that. That's, a, that's, a, that's an error. It's a tragic error. When the judgment day comes, it's going to be a tragic error for you if you're, if you're not focused not only on what Jesus said, but on what he's left to his apostles. And I'll show you why. That's not just my opinion. I'll show you what Jesus said. I have still had many things he said to them just before he was crucified. I have many things to say to you. They're speaking to the twelve. But you cannot bear them now. You can't understand them or bear them at this moment. But I'm going to say them to you when the time is right. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, which he came... Uh, at Acts chapter 2, some days later, and began to speak to the apostles on that day, and continued to speak to the apostles and inspired men, down through the New Testament times, to the, about the year 100 or so. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He promised to guide these 12 men into all the truth that Christ wanted to reveal to them, even though that he, he hadn't told them everything. So if you're only reading the words in red, you haven't got all that God wanted to say to you. Is that not what this says? If you're only reading the words in red or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and become a Jesus person, you're not getting all that God intends for you to know and to be. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you while I'm alive. I have to send the Spirit later to do that. And that's what the other books of the New Testament are about. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you the things to come. And that's why he says a little bit later, a little bit earlier that he told them earlier when he sent them out to do miracles and they came back and they told them the reports of people being rejected in some of these cities, of course, and Bethsaida and other places. He said, he who hears you, you, you apostles, 
hears me. But he who rejects you rejects me. He who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So, do you think it's important to follow not only what Jesus said in in his own lifetime while he was here, but also what the apostle said to do to become a disciple of Christ? It's pretty clear from just those two passages, much less others, that Christ intends for you to follow his apostles. And he says if you reject them, like so many Christian scholars and so forth, oh, we, we don't believe Apostle Paul was a misogynist and he was this and anti-gay and all that. He, we've got to leave Paul out. Peter was just an ignorant fisherman. He, he, he was only good for a few years. When you begin to slander the apostles of God, you're walking on very, very dangerous ground. Because Jesus told you, if you reject them, you reject me. And that's something to think about if you say you love Jesus so much. Now, becoming a disciple of Christ, of Jesus, changed these people in the first century who heard what he said and who did what he said. Notice here are people who had come to believe in him. Maybe his disciples believed in him before this time, or at least after his resurrection. But then in Acts chapter 2, the gospel was preached to a group of people that many of them had been guilty of crying out to him to be crucified. And they stood there on that day in that plaza in the city of Jerusalem at the temple site and heard the apostles speak. The Holy Spirit fell and heard them speak, Peter and the other 11. And it says, then they, in verse 14, Peter told them there, you need to repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of your sins because he's now Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them or added together. Those who gladly received and were baptized, and I've told you before, this is a direct inference that there were many people there that day who did not receive Peter's words, who rejected what he said about belief in baptism, and they did not become disciples. They were not added together in the church because they rejected what Peter said to do. Just like so many so-called Christians do today. They reject what Peter says in Acts 2.38. They do not gladly receive it. They reject it. This passage indicates something bad about that. And then it says, and they can, what did they do then once they were baptized and became and added to the church? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And it's interesting there. He could have said they continued following the words of Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit didn't feel the need to say that. It says that what they continue to do is follow the teaching of the apostles. Now that makes that's not to pick a contrast between what Jesus said and what the apostles said. They're the same thing. But he here focuses the attention on the ones who Jesus said, I'm going to guide you into all truth. And he, these, these early disciples began to follow the apostles' teaching. And so today, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you cannot reject the apostles. You need to focus on what the apostles have taught. And that's found in the New Testament. It's not found in your imagination of what would Jesus do, or whatever the case may be. Now, as you, as you can guess, I never had that bumper sticker on my car. So, just in case you know. I never had the one that said, and some of you probably did, so I'm just doing a mic here on you, but never had the one, as I mentioned before, that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Never had that one either, because that's not correct. God said it, that settles it. I believe it. Isn't that that right order? God said it. Now, whether I ever believe it or not, that settles it. And so I'm thankful if I believe what God says, because that's good for me. But the proper order of that saying, it may not go good on a bumper sticker, though. See, bumper sticker theology 
and politics is a little suspect. All right, just 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 so you know. And and so is all the bumper stickers about you know. Oh, never mind. All the stick figures of all these people's families are on all the dogs and butterflies and whatnot on them. I saw one the other day. A couple of you all like this. It has two big AR-15s and then uh, one bigger, one middle, and then a bunch of small little eight little pistols along beside it. <laughs> That's their family. That's just telling you, don't mess with this car just in case you're thinking about it. Anyway, <laughs> I guess that's the message. Now notice what else he says. Becoming a disciple changed him. He says in verse 44, same chapter, just a little bit down for a little further. Now all who believed were together and had all things common. I, I think he's trying to tell you this is something to change in their life. It wasn't like that for them before they became a Christian or disciple. This is some new behavior on their part, new attitude, that all of a sudden they had other believers together and they began to stay together with them. They were close to them. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all because they had need. And so they shared with one another what they, what they had so they could, they could survive. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, there's the one accord, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. This is a change in attitude and behavior. Now, unfortunately, this attitude about the church as a family of people being together and, and sharing what they have so that everyone uh, has enough and taking care of one another and, and eating food with gladness and simplicity instead of criticism and fear over how many calories and its cholesterol has got and all that, they, they shared it and they enjoyed the blessings that God gave them together. This is what's missing in a lot of churches. I, I wish it was better here even though it's not as bad here as some places. I wish it was better here. We need to be more we need to spend more time together. As long as we maintain a safe social distance of six feet, we spend more time together. Anyway, just so you just so I don't want to get arrested here. Um, notice what else it says. Praising God having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So here are disciples who hear the word, their behavior is altered and then they're called here the church because they belong together. Now, and that really brings us to this point. Being a Christian is the same as being a disciple. I know that we can, if we analyze people's behavior, kind of make a difference between being a Christian and disciple. And, and, but I'm, I guess I'm trying to make the point. It's not optional. If you are a Christian, you are supposed to be a disciple. Will, you all, will people always be? No. And this is one thing I don't know if I can explain this properly. I've tried for years and never can explain it right. The Bible has to be read in many places as, a, as an idealistic statement of what ought to be, not what actually was. I mentioned on the radio this morning that people say, well, what did the Jews in the Old Testament do? Well, I don't know what they did. They did whatever they wanted to do for the most part. Okay? They did what everybody else does. What should they have done? Now, that's a whole different question. What should they have done? And so even the Bible pictures Israel as keeping these laws and Sabbaths. Most of them weren't. The Bible pictures New Testament Christians, what they're supposed to be like, how much they're supposed to love each other, what they're supposed to do together, how they're supposed to share the gospel, how they're supposed to let the Holy Spirit enter their life and change them. Do people do that? They didn't do it then. They don't do it now. There might be periods of time where it's better than others. And I think here early on in some of these passion acts, God kind of presented an idealized picture of what it was like for a while. 
But how long did it take before disease and cancer came into the church? Well, you got Acts chapter 2, you got people doing well, 3, 4, and 5, you got Ananias and Sapphira. And that didn't happen overnight. And then in chapter 6, what do you got? Well, you got this big dispute about the, the widows and the Grecian widows and so forth and so on. And so, uh, I think I jumped ahead of myself here a little bit. Uh, you're shown an idealistic picture in Acts chapter 2 through 4, but then you begin to see the real people who are here. So when we read the Bible, what we should be understanding is, yes, to become a Christian, you're saying when you do that, I want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and I want my life to change over time under his influence and become like him as he wants me to be. But you have to also understand, and other people should, should be doing that. What some people do, they say, well, I'm a Christian now, it's all over, and discipleship, maybe I'll get around to that someday. No, be together. Notice what it says here about this in Acts chapter 11. That here, speaking of, the, of Paul, we know him as Apostle Paul. Here he's called Saul. He, the he here is Barnabas. He, Barnabas, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it was so that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so here, what, what's, is there a difference here between Christians and disciples? No. Some of the people were probably serving Christ more fully than others, but if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you've also got to be a disciple. And if you're a disciple, you can't be a disciple unless you actually are a Christian. Okay. Doing good deeds won't get it done. You must actually be that. So there's a danger in this of believing that God does everything. That's one of the dangers. That's one reason we get this disconnect in churches and in Christian thinking, in denominations in particular, and perhaps among some Christians. You know, being saved by grace is opposed to earning your salvation. 100% agree with that. You cannot earn your salvation. Once you've sinned against God, there's nothing that a human being can do to receive forgiveness of that sin outside of Jesus Christ. No, no amount of good deeds that you do, charities you donate to, nothing can fix you there. You're a sinner, and you're lost without the blood of Christ. And the trouble the Bible says is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have become sinners by our own sin. And so you can never earn your way back in just by doing good deeds. So I don't need to be a Christian per se or decide, I'll just go do good deeds out the soup kitchen. Never going to atone for your sins. Can't be done. It takes the blood of Christ. And that's what grace, and God doesn't have to offer that. The grace is the idea that he offers this to you when he doesn't have to offer it to you, that he will let you uh, uh, come to Christ and be saved when you don't even deserve it. He'll let you do that. That's grace. But Making an effort is not the same as earning your salvation. I think that's a good point. Somebody I read made that point. Making an effort when you become a Christian is not the same as earning your salvation. But it comes out the way it's often taught is that if you do anything, if you make any effort at all to obey the Lord, that that's against grace. Since when is making an effort against the grace of God? Isn't that not exactly what Paul meant? I don't have the verse up here. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when he told the Philippians... As you have in my presence also now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What was he telling them to do there? Make an effort to do what God says to save yourselves. He wasn't telling them to earn their salvation. He was saying, make an effort to follow the Lord. 
And that's what's right about this. So it, it's, it's not legalism to teach other people to observe everything that Jesus said they should do. Observing th- what Jesus said and keeping commandments is the same thing. One, co- one kind of commandments, though, come from man, and the other kind come from God. The Bible always condemns me keeping the commandments of men as if I'm serving God. But it never condemns me keeping the ordinances of God as obedience. And that's the distinction is lost on modern evangelical Christianity. Completely lost because of their misunderstanding of this. And if you're involved in that and read this kind of stuff, I want you to be aware of that. Because it's a dangerous teaching. You know, which uh, well-directed, decisive, and sustained effort is the key to opening a life of power of discipline, and the rest that we seek in Jesus Christ. Uh, I didn't write that sentence, but I think that's correct. As a Christian, as a disciple, when you have been saved, you make up your mind you're going to follow Christ, what you have to now decide is, I'm going to make a well-directed and sustained and decisive effort to follow him as best I can. And part of that is, it's well-directed, it's following the Bible. It's a decision that you've made that's a commitment and it's in, it involves sustained effort. It, it says that the early disciples, it doesn't say they read, the, they read the apostles' teaching or studied the apostles' teaching. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. They continued in it, meaning they started, now they're going to keep it, and they did it steadfastly, not intermittently and not sporadically. That's the difference. That's what he means. I think that's what this fellow who quoted here. I forgot. I didn't put it on here. I should have put his name on here. Said about. I think that's exactly what this being said there in Acts chapter two. That's missing from so many Christian lives. Now, as we kind of wrap this up a little bit here, I've only got about a third of my slides left. So you know, wrap it up. <laughs> I hate this. Puts up how many? You're on slide number fourteen of twenty. And I just want to bang my head on this desk up here. Okay. The cost of discipleship. This is, as the old tire commercial says, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because this is the reason why it's not done. Jesus talks about this himself. Luke 9, the references. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. They're walking down the road. They don't know where they're going, maybe. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you're going to go. Sounds like Peter. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you want to follow me? I don't have a house or anything to give you. I have nothing that you might think you want. You want to follow me? He told them later they would follow him to the cross. Are you ready? He says to Drink the cup that I will drink? Peter said, yes, Lord. When the time came, he pulled out his sword to try to stop it. At that time. Later, Peter submitted to this. But he goes on to say this. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. To another he said, I, another said, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I've never plowed, uh, I've 
used a rototiller big many times, but never plowed with a plow as such, maybe once. And I certainly haven't plowed with a plow like my grandfather did with a pair of oxen. That's how he plowed in Kentucky when he was a young man with a pair of oxen. He's proud of those oxen, apparently, for what he talked about. He talked about but he basically he he read, was telling me that if you were trying to plow with this animal and keep and put one, only one blade, keep that furrow straight with the other one, and you start looking around, it's kind of like me driving down the interstate. You know, it's all over the place. Can't do it. You cannot look behind you at what you've just done or what you think you want to do. You've got to look at where you're going. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, follow me. If you're going to keep looking back, then you can't, you're not fit for God's kingdom. And I think he may mean here looking back into the world and wishing it could be like that and thinking about the things you used to have and all the fun your friends are having and what they've got that you don't have and all those kind of things. You're looking back. Keep looking ahead at where you're going and and look at the path you ought to be cutting with this. And then he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And the operative word there is cannot be my disciple. Because my discipleship following me demands that you love me first and above all things. He doesn't mean here hate and despise and mistreat these people. It means love less than them, I think, possibly. And it means put them second. Now, that's a hard thing for people to do. And and I, I know that's challenging. But you must love the Lord Jesus Christ because too many people will let what their father or mother... I had a cousin. I had a wonderful uncle. He made a mistake in life trying to do good trying to help somebody else and do good. I won't tell you the whole story. But he made a mistake. And I don't think it was the worst thing ever happened, but one of his sons who had become a Christian, who was grown, he said, well, if my father can do that, I'm done. And he's walked away from the church, has never been back. That's been 55, 60 years, 55 years, never been back. That's loving your father more than the Lord. That's one one case of dozens I can tell you about. And sometimes our children lead us astray, or our brothers and sisters. And so even your own life, that's the real one. I want what I want in my life, and since the Lord won't give it to me or makes me suffer, I'm going to have what I want, and if I have to sacrifice my discipleship to Christ and following him and do what I want to do, what I want to do that's what, where it's going to be. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The bear's cross isn't just having problems. It's the idea of crucifying your own life and desires. This is the flesh. Now, that sounds so horrible to most people to crucify your own desires and put them to death. Oh, that'll be so miserable. But they don't have enough faith in God to understand it's a great experience. It's great. It's wonderful for us to crucify our self-will and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you find when you begin to do that is it really the things you thought you wanted are meaningless. They don't, you don't want them at all. They're what leads you astray. Now, this is not the same kind of crucifixion that Gandhi taught of self-denial, meaning don't, don't get excited. See, some kind of types of Hindus teach uh, no passion. You can't show any passion for anything because passion is dangerous. It'll lead you astray. The Bible speaks of passion all the time. We need to have passion as we live, but our passion has to be turned in the right direction. And so, 
uh, it's it all it's altered my prayers. I can tell you that because I I don't even sometimes know what to pray for, and part of the reason is because I know what I'm praying for isn't good enough. Most of them end up being Lord, whatever you would like to do is great with me. Now that's kind of lame, I suppose, but if you lay down your life or bear and, and crucify your own desires, you will find. That when you replace them with the desires of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, everything becomes better. And you no longer want to do the things that you thought you could never give up. I can never give up this. I can never do that. If you begin to try this process of laying it down, you will begin to see that you don't, it's not a problem at all to give it up. Now, that's another couple sermons. We don't go there. But Jesus then continues in Luke 14 to say, Which of you intending to build a tower? does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. I saw a building the other day, driving under uh, like a big two-story house, I think it was, one of Judy, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> it was all painted a nice blue color, except about that far from the roof line, you could see they had reached where they didn't have a ladder tall enough to paint there, and it was all still white up there. You could see the brush roller marks, got as far as they could go up. And so apparently they didn't measure on the ladder just how far they needed to be able to reach. So they were waiting to go back to Home Depot and get a longer extension or hire somebody. To, but they didn't count the cost. So we make a good start sometimes. And so he says here, you, after you lay the foundation, it's not able to finish it. All who see begin to mock. Say this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you counted that cost, that's what I have to ask you if you want to become a Christian or disciple. Did you count the cost of what Christ is asking you is not how much you can give him. He wants to all, he just wants all of you. So as C.S. Lewis would say, it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian. It just takes all there is of him to follow the Lord. Now, no matter how, how you're not smart or great or pretty or whatever it may be, God doesn't care about that at all. How much of your heart will you give him over time? And so Peter says then, Speaking of suffering, specifically here in Peter, 1 Peter 2. For this you were called. To, to this you were called. Suffering. You were called to suffering. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Basically, he left marks. Example is the word for marks. He left footprints and marks in the ground, how you're supposed to walk. And you need to follow his steps. You need to put your heel into his heel print and follow his steps. Who committed no sin... Was no deceit was found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now that's a big lesson about suffering. But it also goes to the whole idea of living as a Christian. You put your heel in the marks that he left for us to follow. And you find that not only what he wrote, but what he taught his disciples to do. So when a decision comes up in your life, you have to always understand not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do, and how can I imitate that example? And how can my words and my speech and my actions and my thoughts reflect what Jesus said for me to do as a Christian? We won't always succeed in that. You're going to fail and realize your efforts are pretty poor sometimes. But you must continue steadfastly in this and never give up. Otherwise, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. You may pretend to be. People may call you that, but you really can't be. Those are sobering words for us to consider. And I thank you for listening today. Our time is well gone. Uh, and I appreciate your uh, attention to these things. But uh, this call of discipleship is the main thing that we ought to have in our minds, those of us who are Christians, all the time. Not something optional.
As we sing, as we close our service, or this part of the service, we're going to sing number 772, Why Do You Wait, Dear Brother? And it's an opportunity for you to come to the Lord if you're not a Christian. Be baptized in His name and begin to follow Him on that pathway, marking His steps, learning as you go along, submitting your life at every turn. And we'll do that today and baptize you into Christ if that's your desire. You come to the front, you confess His name as the Lord and Savior, and you can be a Christian. Or this morning, if you failed this task of being a disciple, come and let your brothers and sisters pray with you, help you, encourage you along the way. Get back on the right track. Pick up your cross and begin to follow him again. So if we can help you today, you let that be known right now as we stand and sing.